and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, June 22nd, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaber. And we are here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, we will suggest a process for developing apps that run everywhere. We'll share anecdotes about the alarming insecurity of telephonic communications and wonder aloud about what will become of our website when we eventually shed this mortal coil. So grab your hanky. A very special episode of the Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. Wow, totally silent this morning. <laughs> I was I was waiting to see who would, who would get in first. <laughs> I guess I guess I lose. So I'll have you know that I shut off a forty-plus hour download in progress, so we could record. Oh wow, the GoDaddy download never finished. Nope. Wow. Yeah, I I'm gonna have to pick and choose. It's uh, it's a lot of like uh, so I had this GoDaddy server that I've been using for offsite backups for like two years and uh every night my um a bunch of servers primarily my web server but a few other ones uh are sync uh, a snapshot over to this uh other drive uh, other machine and the drive fills up periodically and i go through and i clear out like you know clear it down to once per month uh backups and then i keep like the most recent ones for the last couple of weeks or so mm-hmm and it adds up after a while. <laughs> They're like each each uh, backup is like five megs, and I've got about thirty of them. Yeah. So the download was taken. Uh, it was at like forty hours, and I was like, "This is, I I never it was never going to finish anyway." And it was downloading, and it wasn't the thing that stinks, is that it wouldn't like download a complete directory and then move to the next one. Next one. Yeah, it would just it was getting bits and pieces. Yeah, of everything. So like I've got I got like ten directories partially downloaded, mm. with no way of knowing exactly what was downloaded. Yeah, that's annoying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I'm picking and choosing now. Yeah. I probably don't need them all anyway. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't know which one to go back to if I had to. Oh, so, and I got the uh, vacuum monster squared away for the next hour or so. Yeah, you said, what, you could get it caged up there? Or? Exactly, yep. I got the dogs locked down here with me and the vacuum monsters upstairs. <laughs> so Cooper napping. They are, it is like, it's not record-breaking temperatures yet today, it's record-tying. Yeah. <laughs> but I have a feeling that we might break some records today. It is so hot already, and... uh for once we're actually recording in the morning it's 10 a.m and it's already like 90 degrees so yeah i was i was looking at the weather um last night and it's supposed to get up to 93 here today which is not uncommon for us during the summer hmm. but I, I noticed in boston they were saying 97 which seems crazy yeah it's it's really humid too it's gonna be brutal yeah so i'll be lugging my air conditioner upstairs after this <laughs> I'll be wishing our central air was our central air conditioner is about, I guess, half ton too small for the square footage of our house. Mm. So it can't really keep up when it gets that hot. Yeah, that stinks. That stinks. Well, fortunately, it's always cold in cyberspace. <laughs> so. Um, so I, we should probably move into something a little more interesting to the listener. Um, we have been working a lot on prototyping and, uh, and API design for the past week. I don't think we have any yes. information for the bug report that I, can you think of anything? Um, other than to say that I'm really not a fan of Zen framework now. <laughs> yeah. That'll be a conversation that we'll have for sure. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I will say uh, I, we could talk about someone else's bugs, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is that we've been using um, Mockingbird for prototyping uh, real low fidelity wireframes for a new project, and and 
uh, it's the first time we've used it. Figured we'd give it a shot. We've compared. We're, we're haven't used. I haven't really used balsamic for a, pr a real project yet, but that seemed like the other big option. And balsamic is a little bit more, a little less polished looking. You know, it purposely looks very handwritingy. So we just sort of randomly went with Mockingbird, and uh, it was great at first because it lets yeah. you bang out stuff. I mean, you cranked out like like twenty or thirty screens in a couple hours. Uh, it, it's really good for fast stuff. Yeah. But we're up to 78 screens now, probably more. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you worked on it last night. So there's, there's, it, it really starts to break down after you hit like 20 or 30 screens because there's just got this sort of long scrolling list on the left-hand side that you can't, uh, you know, you want to name everything, all the all the screens very um, specifically so you can find them again later, but then that means that the names end up really long and you can't open up the window big enough to see them and the redraw is terrible. And uh, it's, it, uh, so I think it's really great for if you have, a, you know, a small number of screens, you can crank stuff out so fast. Uh, but, what, but for something as large as what we're doing. Yeah, it just totally breaks down. I, I actually found myself, ex you can... Um, export all of the screens as uh, PNG files mm -hmm. and uh, I've been doing that just to use as navigation so I'll like look at the at the PNGs find the one that I want and then find it in the list and open it. it's like it's a it's a it gets to be a really tedious workflow yeah I was I was surprised that 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 sidebar that contains all the file listings could not be expanded so you couldn't see the, all the file names that were in it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I, I, I figured you'd be able to drag it to the to the right yeah. and expand, make it wider. It's uh, it's a frustrating process. Yeah, we we liked Mockingbird at first, and you know I could definitely see myself using it again for a small project, but for something this large, I guess given given the the scope of this, we probably could have and should have just done it in Proto. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am kind of torn on that. I do agree that, um, I much preferred that in general, but, uh, I do like the, th the thing I like about Mockingbird is that it's obviously not uh, high fidelity. So there's no conversation about like, Oh, you know, this yellow Colors is a little and, too bright. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's obviously a, a wireframe. Right. So, so potentially it's possible that Proto IO does that, um, I haven't really looked at it, but the but in my experience so far, the widgets are pretty iOS screenshot looking. You know, they're mm -hmm. very very um, high fidelity. It's very refined, yeah. But it does a great job. the The one thing that it does is an, an excellent job of giving you controls over, um, you know, put, attaching actions to controls like buttons and links and all that stuff. It gives you a lot more. Um, a lot more styling control and all that stuff. And of course the expense of that is, is that it takes longer um, in part of, so, you know, yeah. lesson, lesson learned. It's a, a trade-off. Yep. Picking the right tools for the job. Um, yeah, the, the problem is there's, there are a lot of wireframing and mock-up tools out there, but there's not one yet. There's, so what was that? You cut out. Uh, can, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. It would turn into a Verizon commercial. <laughs> You were saying um I was I was saying there there are a lot of prototyping prototyping and markup tools mockup tools out there. See see I can't talk either. Uh <laughs> a lot of tools out there for that, but I haven't really landed on one yet that just feels perfect. Yep. Kind of segues into the big thing that I wanted to talk about this week, um, where I'm seeing some maturity start to happen in the the um at least in the mobile web space and, you know, designing for multiple screens and all of that stuff. So, and the reason, the, th the things I would point to um, are that the like processes are starting to emerge. Like a year ago or two years ago, a lot of little, a lot of libraries were coming out and, mm -hmm. and sort of people were making attempts to do like uh standalone frameworks and you know i'm thinking of like like jq touch or jquery mobile uh and uh uh what's another one like like uh sprout core let's say Sencha touch all of these you know sort of 
it's kind of like the first reaction, a developer's first reaction is like, oh, you know, I'm doing all of these repetitive tasks all the time. I should write a framework to help me do it more easily. Um, but, but now I am starting to see more cohesive processes starting to emerge. And the, the main thing that I would point to was, uh, it was funny because I wanted to talk about this anyway. And then I think it was yesterday, um, Filament Group, who is the company behind, uh, uh, one of the companies behind jQuery UI, um, they released something called South Street, which is a collection of libraries and tools and and uh, patterns that they've been using a lot in this sort of new world order of developing for multiple screen sizes. And it's it's hyper web specific, um, but uh, it's it's an interesting collection of things like um, there's like uh, uh, J uh, JavaScript. Um, minifier and there's a CSS minifier and there's like uh, stuff that that uh, compresses everything into one file and there are ways for dealing with adaptive images and it's kind of like uh, HTML boil, boilerplate on steroids yeah and I thought it was super cool um, Scott Jail and uh, and filament group released that stuff because they're kind of I mean they do this is like the kind of work they do and they're kind of like opening up their toolkit to the world and it's all up on github which we'll link to in the show notes and i on that same topic so it was funny they released that yesterday because i wanted to talk about process a little bit today too um there are it seems like tons of um things that we have to deal with in this uh in the the zombie apocalypse um particularly around device size and capabilities but there there are other things too user context and all that uh, dealing with um, a design process for something like this with a client, like how do you do that? And so I was, I've started to make up a list uh, in response to an email I received of stuff that it seems like we're doing every time uh, right. for clients. And so I, I kind of want to go down that list and get your feeling on it and see if I'm missing anything. Probably, um, probably release, you know, publish as a blog post at some point. Sure. Cool. Yeah, it's, and in fact, I was a while back, I was started to write a blog post that was very similar, I guess, probably geared more toward just describing my development workflow. Mm -hmm. But I, I think then something happened. And I don't know, I maybe got distracted by a TV show or something. <laughs> Cat ran by. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So this is not anything real, certainly finalized. It's just like, I think I have seven, seven steps that seem to keep on happening. Um, first one is perhaps the most important, which is know what you're doing, uh, in terms of having a focus and the, so a project comes along, whether it's, uh, an internal project or for a client, uh, I kind of came at this from an internal standpoint where we, we were our own client. And for me, the most important thing to do to start off is, is basically write a tagline that summarizes, just quickly summarizes the, the the personality and reason for the project, you know, so like Avalio's future friendly domain search or happy docs painless API documentation, you know, like, like a quick, a quick, like what you would, how you would describe the app or service or whatever it is to right, just someone a, else. Just a sentence or two. Yeah. Real short, real short. And, and these can be really, they can be deceptively hard to come up with a succinct um, statement about your product i i find you know like rabble for example i'm still yeah. never happy like you know we, i think the tagline on that page is uh is you know a fast and easy way for your site visitors to chat with each other and it's just like it's too much like i would yeah. never i would never say that to someone if somebody said yeah. hey what's rabble it's a fast rabble and easy a way fast yeah. easy way yeah <laughs> So I feel like that is a little bit, I feel like that's an indicator of a problem. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, yeah. me with naming, I'm like religious about naming things like variable names and functions and especially database tables and API properties and all that stuff. And yeah, and the, the, and it's, it's not, I'm, I am totally OCD about that, but it's not for no reason. It's, it's because. I find that in a project, if you have a problem picking a name for something like we had recently with uh, guardianship and all that stuff, mm -hmm. 
there's probably indicates a problem in yeah in it, the design yeah exactly it scares me yeah so yeah. if there's and, not an obvious word for something i get nervous yeah in fact we had you and i had one project that we had talked on 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 and off about for uh i guess probably several months and i had written i guess a couple of papers just pretty much just describing things and uh, you know qualities and and aspects that i would like to do accomplish with it and like we we never we never could really find that focus and come up with that one line right it's hard because a lot of times it's hard because um uh, i don't know if this was the problem in that in that case i can't remember but um but sometimes you don't want to pigeonhole yourself down to one thing yeah um but it, oh, you know what? I do remember. I, I remember getting really close to it with that. And and there's a certain point where it becomes really concise, but it's too vague. Uh, you know, your your reason for being needs to be it needs to be you know specific enough, but uh, you know to express something meaningful to a person you're talking to, but uh, but not not. A paragraph that's too like I feel like you're yeah I feel like the idea has not been honed down enough if you have to use like two sentences so think of it like the mission statement for your app I guess that's the way I look at it yeah yeah, yeah. mission statement is actually what we were working on so yeah yeah so it's not easy and it's it's uh, it's it's tempting to jump straight into code and start you know you kind of like know what you want to build a lot of times at least I do like, yeah oh you know what would be cool like this like Wait a, a yeah, like a, a wireframing thing, a thing that does this and that. Yeah, it would be so cool. And and then you get halfway into it, and you're like, "What? What am I doing?" So having this like mission statement, especially if you're working with a team, I think is super critical because it'll keep you keep everybody on track uh, when it, the inevitable should we put this feature in or not question rears its ugly head. Um, or if you've got a client involved and they say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, right, bef <laughs> right before you're about to release the thing and they're like, oh, I just thought it would be awesome to add this, my, which my reaction is always, well, if it was really that important, you probably would have thought of it six months ago. Six months ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, I was just getting ready to say that, that it, it can can really help sort of prevent scope creep and just make you stop and reexamine before you add new features as to whether or not that you know, that thing should be in there. Right. Yep. So, I, so that's probably that's probably all we need to say about that. But it's very important, and it's easy to skip. But uh, you you should not skip it. Number two. Number two. Moving right along. Uh, this this is arguable. So feel free to push back on this one. But I think okay. the next step is probably doing uh, wireframes for the smallest form factor. Of course, that presumes that you're going to have some sort of graphical user interface. But that would be the next thing I think I would do, which is create basically mobile phone wireframes, perhaps even smaller if, if we have a feeling the app would make sense on a watch or something like that. That's typically what we've been doing, and it seems to be working fairly well. I think you have to, I don't think you necessarily always have to go phone if it's not the type of app that, you know, there's some types of apps people just won't use on a phone. Like no one's going to sit down on their phone and write documentation in Happy Docs. Right. Yeah. So. So I, definitely the the smallest screen resolution that it's reasonable that, that your application will run in. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. So and the the reason why I would put that before step three, which is design the API, uh, is that it's uh, I f I find it um, well if we I'll actually step three design but don't build the API. Um, I find. There's two important things here. One is that uh, it's tempting, like uh, like I said in step one, it's tempting to just start coding the API because mm -hmm. there will be a bunch of stuff that's totally obvious. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to build out the big models and the, these these uh, resource, these routes are going to look like this. But then there'll be like 50% of the stuff that's in there that could potentially, that's implied by the concept that is really hard to figure out in a vacuum. So in absence of a um, user interface or graphical user interface, there there can be there can be places in the API where you want where you need to optimize stuff or at least make a decision, kind of like, oh well, we could 
we could make this like logically complete, but then we'd have a, a huge API that we wouldn't use a whole bunch of. Right. Because there's no way to interact with it. Right. Do you, do you need calls for everything? And because some some actions that you could potentially take, you're just not going to need API calls for because the the use case never comes up. And then I think the the biggest thing for me that having an interface helps define is uh, probably nested resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. The sort of convenience responses where you don't want to make two or three requests to retrieve, like um, uh, what's a difficult one? A photo. Uh, and then a, another request to retrieve its comments and another re request to retrieve its likes and blocks and uh, tags and all of these things. You just want one request for the photo that has all of those things nested into it like a more like a complex object instead of just a flat data structure. Right. Uh, because you're going to virtually any time that you're calling for a specific photo in the interface, you're also going to need those other things. Right. If you're calling for a collection, maybe not so much because maybe you're just displaying a grid of a photo grid right. and you're not doing any kind of drill down on it. But anytime you want to display a single photo, you're probably also going to want the, the extra content that's associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. So having having done the, the wireframes already, when you're designing the API, it lets you it helps you make those. I don't want to call them optimizations, but at least makes it helps you make smart decisions about uh, you know, stuff you can leave until later and stuff that you need right now. Yeah, and it, it helps with, with planning out your URL structures and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So step four would be to actually build the API. So once, well, I, unless you disagree. No. Okay. No. So once we've, we've got it documented. Yep. Okay, now we can build it. Right, which um, in a way having designed it is feels a little bit anticlimactic but um yeah building it's almost an afterthought right right but there's a there can be a fair amount of um uh sometimes you'll come up with designs for uh designs for like a, a call a, a resource or a particular route that's like kind of hectic to write in the database mm-hmm so there, you know, we've had some situations where you had to really jump through hoops to get something working in a, in a way that wasn't going to nuke the database, right? Yeah, yeah, I've had to, had to manually write some some pretty hairy queries. Yeah, what well, so was that doing reports for? I think that was doing reports for a system we wrote for a client. Yeah, yeah, and it, it some of the some of the the some of the queries for those reports actually do still run kind of slow. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's only so much you can do. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, so I think, I think that's that's pretty much all there is to say about building the API. Um, we, to I, I'm probably said that we've probably said this a million times, but we kind of standardized on on using you know real REST services uh, that return JSON, and we're using Sinatra, which is a Ruby framework and uh, hosting everything on EC2. And that's been, I mean, that's all, that's all you. I don't do any of that, but you've been super happy with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And I will, I will add light tests. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. And I, I really think the testing should happen during the development. You know, it's certainly not some, you don't want to develop your API and then go back afterwards and write unit tests for everything. You need to need to test, test as you develop. Mm-hmm adding that now cool so i don't i don't know if i would say i'm a fan of test driven development i'm a i'm a fan of of, of verifying your development process as you go along mm -hmm. yeah i mean i've done that in other environments and it's just like sometimes you have that like question mark in your head like oh this is like writing this test is such a pain in the butt but man, like at some point, a little bit farther down the road, you are mm -hmm. so happy you can just press that button and make sure you didn't break anything. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, especially when you get models depend, you know, and things that depend on on other parts of the system and everything kind of interlinking and working together. You don't you don't want to to add a resource for one thing and have it break something else that you did yesterday. Right. Yeah. The the similar to that is the or, or maybe to sort of emphasize the complexity um, once you start to have multiple levels of permissions inside of a system mm 
Mm-hmm. It's brutal to, there's like no way to like manually test it and make sure that you haven't introduced like some kind of security hole after the fact. Yeah, that's a good point. It's too complicated for me, you know, mentally, I, it's too hard to like switch into the different shoes of the different roles and like go drive an interface and that, you know, go around a GUI interface and be like, yeah, but nothing broke. This It's just, there's <laughs> no way. So, okay, great. So then, so let's call that uh, part of step four is integrate testing yeah. into your build process, development process, I should say. So then the next step I'm pretty sure we're both in total agreement with is um, once you've got the API um, to, to build a command line interface or some text-driven interface to interact with the API. And if you find you can't do that, it means you need to start over at step three, yeah. uh, the design yeah. phase. Or you can use the query tool built into Happy. Plug, plug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Happy Docs is a killer app. It's great. Yeah, we, we've added we've added the, the query. I think I mentioned that last week though, that we added the query tool integration into happy. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we talked about doing it, but uh, I'm not sure if we announced that it's done, which it is. So, yeah. So you can go in and, and actually do all your documentation in happy. And then uh, uh, once you are building your API and you've got some stuff working, you can actually just click right in from the documentation to, uh, to test the calls. So it's super cool. Yeah, so the the concept of building a command line interface to interact with the API uh, is it's kind of like just a gut check to make sure that you're not accidentally programming it in a web app specific way. I think a lot of web designers and developers are the ones that are kind of getting drug into this new world of um, of mobile and trying to deal with responsive design and realizing that repurposing an existing site or application um, it's it's CSS is not uh, not always enough and you have to actually break out the functionality of uh, of your existing let's let's just say you have an existing web app you need to break out the functionality uh, into an API and a front end when you have to build your second front end so a lot of web developers are in this situation, but I, I think still, again, speaking for myself, I was still thinking web client, web client, web client, web client, talking to the API and, and kind of fell into some patterns that um, caused me to design the APIs in a way that was specific to web clients. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, think, I think when you wrote the, the TextMate bundle for Avalio, it really kind of opened your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm completely, uh, I'm completely broken into the new world mentally. Yeah. So, but the the point for the listener is that uh, the having a text only interaction with your API is is very revealing, and you the experience that you want is that it's it's easy. It should be very easy for you to write a, a CLI if your API is set up properly. So, you know, you'll still be transforming responses and everything and you might have to, you know, you'd be sending headers back and forth and you need some client side persistence and all that, but, um, potentially, but, uh, it, it should be the kind of thing that you could crank out a proof of concept in an hour or so. It obviously it depends on the complexity of the API, but, um, you know, you could get some functionality happening, uh, pretty quickly. So it's more, I don't know if I would call this a step necessarily. I, I think it is, but it should be very quick. It's not something that you're necessarily going to release as an application. It's, uh, it's almost part of testing. Yeah, yes, I agree. I agree. It is kind of related to that. You're validating your design, essentially. So cool. So step six, um, build a static data prototype based on the wireframes. So I think... Even I could kind of debate this one with myself, mm -hmm. um, but I think there's something to be said for it. So assuming that you are, um, assuming that the project is going to have some web component, which I think is probably true in many cases, if not most, that if you're building a, a REST API, you're probably going to have at least one web client attached to it. 
And here what I'm saying is that uh, your wireframes presumably are very low fidelity and you want to um, essentially do a design round, uh, taking those into a prototype that uh, is going to be more interactive, but maybe not talking to the API. So you've got like static data, um, you know, maybe a static JavaScript file that has the data and you're implementing your designs essentially so that you can, you know, maybe scale your windows up and down and make sure that your CSS looks right. Um, make sure that, uh, you know, targets are finger friendly on touchscreen devices that you're targeting. Uh, all of these things kind of like flesh out the design, um, validate the design. And, uh, and I think at this point you'll find out, um, you shouldn't find out too much assuming your wireframes were good you should just really be having that like taking that final step really of the wireframes i guess to make a a, a prototype with clients yeah. i find this is really really helpful because the wireframes don't quite do it yeah yeah i i think on our, on some of our own projects we've probably kind of kind of skipped this or or maybe not felt it quite so necessary but when dealing with working with clients it's it's definitely proven helpful yeah yeah exactly yeah and and also i think i think once you have the api design phase finished where you have you you have some sample responses there of, of types of data you're going to get back from the api mm -hmm. i feel like i feel like the designers and front-end developers can then go ahead and begin this phase while you're doing the api development and testing Absolutely. In fact, I wrote that in the, in the, my notes for this, that it can happen concurrently with four and five. Yep. So, and it's probably a different person. Um, it's, you know, obviously it could be a, a one person gig, but um, it, it could easily be a different person, more just, you know, front end developer type of person. And it's been kind of like me doing this sort of stuff and you doing the API stuff. Yeah. Um, which has been working out nice, but I like to do both. And I know you like to do both. So it's so so maybe maybe this is more uh, for clients, uh, but it's an interesting step. And and you do find that um, there were things in the wireframes that were unimplementable or didn't make as much sense when you actually saw what they were going to look like uh, as as they did initially. It can trigger all sorts of feedback from the client. Uh, so it's definitely a useful step. And then once you have that. Uh, you've got everything you need to really build an app. So um, you can kind of, uh, again, it's almost anticlimactic. You could take the prototype and depending on how you did it, um, you can plug it into the API and start testing that. I don't know of any prototyping tools that really output something that you could then use as the source for uh, an actual application without just going straight to HTML in step six. Yeah. So you could do a high fidelity prototype um, in like proto.io that we were talking about earlier, but you can't then take that. It, well, yeah, actually you could take that and turn it into a web client, but I think it would be hard. Uh, and it's, and the performance isn't as snappy as it could be because it's, you know, there's all the sort of meta things going on uh, in the application that don't need to actually be there. Um, yeah. It, it will generate an HTML prototype but I feel like I feel like that's not really going to be a lot of that that's reusable yeah it's really not I mean maybe the assets or something but but uh, not the code it's pretty slick but it's for it's not for building apps it's for building prototypes and there's a big difference so step six for me a lot of times um, doing the the static data prototype uh, a lot of times that is actually coding HTML CSS and JavaScript and just having static data um, so if that is what you do in step six, then when you get to step seven, it's a little anticlimactic because you're just writing all your Ajax calls basically and, uh, and, and returning the appropriate data instead of the static data and doing testing. Right. Right. It's, it probably seems to some people, and I know it kind of did to me at first too, it seems like a lot of setup work and maybe a lot of, a lot of extra work initially. But then once you've, once you've got that done, you can, you can go any, go any direction with it you want. Mm -hmm. it, it really pays off. If, if you're going to have, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. You know, if you're building a site that's, that's only ever going to be used 
through a you know through a, a desktop web browser, then there's there's no point. There's probably no point in having an API. There's no point in 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 going through that and having that extra level of separation. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we're we're big advocates of, of API first development, but the fact is that's just not going to be necessary for every type of project. Yeah, and I mean, Happy is a perfect so, example. Right, right, exactly. We we don't have an API for Happy Dogs because we felt that would be a little too meta. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. if we were real nerds, we would have documented the Happy API inside of Happy. Yeah, as as we were writing it or something. <laughs> yeah. So, but that that is a a good example. It was kind of like um, the the nature of the content. I mean, we could probably expose some kind of functionality to mobile devices, but certainly not yeah. authoring. And yeah, it, just just a good a good reading. Yeah. Even some of the reading would be hard to do because you're looking at looking at large JSON responses and that type of thing. Yeah, we would need to come up with something really clever to make that usable on a phone size screen. So, and I think there's always there's as more devices become available and 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 screen sizes just get more wildly um, extended and shrunken down. And as more interfaces come into play that don't even have screens or have flexible screens or resizable screens um, or are just voice or just text or audio. Um, or your, your retina display 52-inch TV. I can't wait. I want that <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so, yeah, so... There's, on the one hand, I feel like I feel like I'm being a little, uh, a little hypocritical. On the one hand, there are. I'm a big advocate for developing for, um, you know, stuff that's going to run everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but your content can some kind of push you out of certain areas where it just doesn't make sense to be there. You know, it doesn't make sense for Happy Docs to be on the radio. <laughs> you know. So it, it's Happy just docs by SMS. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, I suppose you could contrive some example where it was useful, but, um, you know, but in general, I think, I think tons and tons of, um, I think too many people are still on the, the old side of the fence, which is build a website that's basically vertically, a vertically integrated stack, essentially a silo. Um, you know, and mobile is mobile is is what's waking everybody up to that because there's no way to take their desktop website and reasonably shrink it down for mobile. So they're creating uh, alternate URLs for their mobile sites. Now they're maintaining two sites. Yada yada yada. So that's yeah. all. Phone phones are only the beginning. Exactly. Um, cool. So I think that we're pretty much in agreement on uh, on those steps. Yeah. And that you know, seven steps to get you up to the point where you can build your app. So, or at least what you think of as your app or what your client thinks of as the app. So that's uh, pretty good. I think um, that gives us a little bit of a framework to, to think through. We've been doing this kind of um, a little bit intuitively so far, but I think having it written down makes it a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit more farther up in the consciousness. Yeah, it's it's nice to review. Mm -hmm. Nice to nice to go through and and uh, and just kind of really define the process and you know like I said I had thought about putting something together a while back as far as some of the tools I use because I, I don't use a whole lot of tools surprisingly I, I think I, I know some developers they just they have a tool for everything <laughs> and, and the the amount uh, amount of software I use is actually not a not a huge amount but you know, they're, they're very valuable to me in, in the way I use them and so I thought about putting something together on that myself yeah that would be cool we should um on twitter actually dave johnson uh, formerly of natobi slash phone gap fame uh asked on twitter what people's main apps were applications mm -hmm. were i think that was the question and it was a really short list for me i mean yeah uh i wasn't sure if he was asking about things like i am or or more like text editors but for me it's like like I've got I am open pretty much all day and, you know, ADM specifically. I've yeah. got Gmail open all day. I've got TextMate open all day, terminal window most of the day, uh, and Chrome, but, you know, a bunch of web apps. 
Um, not not too much else. Occasionally, I'll use Acorn to ed edit images, but very mm. rarely. Yeah, like I'm just I'm just looking at what I have open on my on my dock now, and I have I have Skype, Photoshop, Terminal, Adium, Firefox, uh, Sublime, and CodeKit. Mm. What's CodeKit? CodeKit is it is a CodeKit does all kinds of things. Actually, I really like it. Um, I use it mainly for for uh, pre-processing um, less files and minifying and compiling JavaScript and compiling CSS. Mm -hmm. And but it will also it will also do some image optimization and and what have you as well. And you can you can use it and and set up like if you have a CSS framework you use or libraries that you pull in commonly or what have you. You can set them up in CodeKit. And then automatically, it can automatically import them into into whatever you're developing, and it's just a it's a it's a really really neat little application. Hmm, that's cool. It's a desktop app for Mac. Yeah, it's a desktop app app for Mac. Cool. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I discovered it. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, if you're familiar with it, but the uh, there's a less desktop application for Mac that just does the the preprocessing of less files. Yeah. And it's it's made by the the same author. Hmm. Is it so? Like, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of. Well, I'm not. I shouldn't say I'm not a fan of it. I have nothing against it, but I haven't really had projects where the CSS was complex enough to warrant adding that layer. Um, but Dave Canada, who uh, was most recently at uh, Sencha, is a huge fan of uh i think sas compass sas slash yeah. compass and uh and he, uh, i've seen him working before and he's got like a watched full he's got like a command line uh process running that watches folders that when he saves a uh, i guess a sas document it automatically creates css mm -hmm. um yeah and i've i've used that mm -hmm. i've done it i've done it with the command line as well but this is this is not that. This is like a, a windowed application. It's a it's a windowed application, but it does the same type of thing. It'll do compass and compass and SAS and less both. Mm -hmm. Sure, you know, they're they're both two different types of, of CSS preprocessors. And mm -hmm. compass compass four, which is actually I guess compass and SAS are separate things, but they're quite often used together. Compasses compass uses SAS and and provides a lot of extra. A lot of extra libraries and CSS functionality that you can then include, but um, I, I find more often I'm just using less, which is just gives you some some nice nesting syntax and variables and includes and mix-ins without without a lot of the extra overhead that you can incur with Compass. Mm, but it it will it will watch your project and and compile those for you in real time as you're as you're working. Mm. That's cool. So, I, you know, so I, I work with the less files, and then it compiles the CSS from those into the into the project directory. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It, the thing the thing about preprocessors that I really really do like uh, is the vendor prefixing by you know automatic vendor mm -hmm. prefixing. Uh, that is really nice. But you know, I'm I'm like I'm in a little bit of a weird situation where I frequently. Um, I don't really have anything stored locally on any of my machines, so it's not mm -hmm. uncommon for me to wipe a drive for for no good reason, or, <laughs> or just a, like a, a, a just on a whim kind of. Uh, and I switch back and forth between machines so much that I I sort of despise any uh, extra environment setup for development. Um, so that really holds me back uh, in a lot of cases. Like like just getting Git installed annoys me. <laughs> um, I often have difficulty doing that and every, and I, I don't do it so frequently that I can remember how to do it every time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've got a lot of different machines with different versions of the OS. I mean, I've got like everything from mountain lion down to leopard, uh, at this point, plus some PCs, which I don't use for development, but just testing. But, uh, like the other day I, you know, I went to install something on a leopard machine and it didn't it didn't even have like a package manager installed. So like, so right off the bat, I had to just like somehow install, uh, what did I install? Mac ports or something. And it's just like a pain, you know, like yeah. by the time I get that installed, I'm like, oh, let me just go upstairs and get the other machine. And you know, I don't know. 
I just like, yeah, it's like this, those small little things and like getting, uh, getting set up on, uh, if there was an easy way to just like bang, set up a machine, then I'd be a lot more inclined to get, I'd be able to get into a rhythm with some of the, the, uh, like CSS preprocessors and coffee script too. I'm just not, I just can't get myself. I can't get there. I can't get excited about coffee scripts. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of people swear by it. Yeah. Like people whose opinions I, I really respect. And I, I, I mean, I definitely think that, uh, that CSS preprocessors are a good idea. I'm just like an old fart, <laughs> like set in my ways. <laughs> I can't get into see, that new rhythm. I just, Christ, see, I just got why, Nginx That's why you up. need CodeKit. Well, that's the, and that's the attractive thing is that I'd just be able to like install it, especially if it was like in the app store, which the Mac app store, which uh, as much as I don't like the concept, it, the one thing it does great is, is give you access to your apps on all your machines. And that's a big deal for me. Yeah. So actually, I don't think it is in the app store. Yeah. I would, I'd be surprised if it was like a developer developers tend to do their own downloads but so that's cool look into that and we'll uh, link to it in the show notes i noticed that um css variables landed in one of the webkit nightlies recently yeah uh, so that's i think it's css4 uh, actually uh, so it's probably a long way off but uh, a little bit of progress there yeah i saw it and i thought oh good we'll be able to use it in 12 years <laughs> exactly well yeah that is the problem um, so what else? So we mentioned SMS a couple of times so far, and something happened to, to try and segue, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, we mentioned SMS a little earlier, and something interesting happened to me the other day that's kind of, I'd be interested to see what you think, uh, mm -hmm. or if you've had to deal with this in the past. So a little bit of backstory. I have, a, a you know, f maybe 30 or 40 phones uh, at until recently, I had um, actual phone numbers on about, I guess, about six of them. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, Verizon accounts and T-Mobile and Sprint. And, and I was paying for them all. I wasn't, wasn't really using them. Uh, and all of them can connect. You know, I have them all for testing. Uh, and generally when I get a new phone, um, especially when like Android came out or the Palm Pre, I want to actually use it as my main phone and get a feel for the phone and what the experience is like. So it does kind of need to have a phone number for you to get that experience. Right. But, but it was, you know, I was paying like almost a grand a month in, um, in phone bills. So I was like, this is ridiculous. So I went and canceled a bunch of them. Um, so that's the background. And, and the other day, I was trying to, how did this happen? The other day, Erica got a phone call from me, but it wasn't me. You know, the phone said, right. Incoming call from Jonathan Stark. And, and she was like, answered it, of course. And, uh, it was totally like some wacky dude. And <laughs> she was like, and he was like, why are you calling me? And she's like, you're calling me. And, you know, they hung up. And he called her like five times. He's like, wow. stop, stop calling me. And she's like, I'm not calling you. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I was like, um, I, my first thought was that someone broke into the house actually, because neither one of us was home at the time. And she, uh, you know, but it wasn't that. So I, I poked around. I found out that the, you know, I told her to check the caller ID because on, on the iPhone, which is what she has. It doesn't say the phone number. It just says the person's name and shows their picture. So, of course, you know, right. she wouldn't even, there wouldn't even be a way for her to determine that it wasn't me. But somehow this guy was calling from a phone number that was in my address record for her in her phone. Hmm. So uh, what happened was that I released the phone number and it went back into the pool and someone bought a new phone and they got my old phone number. Yeah. And, um, when I had all of those phones, the only way that I could uh, actually switch them without, you know, attempting to like <laughs> get my parents to call me on a new number for two weeks, like that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I set up Google Voice to forward to all my phones. So when Erica would call me, it would ring all my phones, all my phone numbers. So 
she, she would SMS or call me. And this dude who now has my old phone number was getting, was getting phone calls and text messages from Erica through Google voice. Ah, uh, and we didn't know it of course, because I was also getting them on my other phone. Right. But so here's the, here's the issue that that raises. Um, uh, it's a security thing for a, a project yet to be announced that, uh, that we're kind of excited about, um, that uses SMS for authentication. So, you know, how do you invalidate a phone number? I mean, my, my situation is kind of extreme in that I have so many phones that I can't even keep track. I, like, I don't even know what the numbers are. <laughs> Yeah. Like I go, I keep them in Google voice so I can go in and see what my actual phone numbers are. Yeah. So what, what happens when you release a phone number, which granted probably doesn't happen all that often, but certainly is a possibility. Uh, and, and then that made me think, well, how does it work with email now? Because right now a lot of identity is wrapped up in, um, in email like uh, it's not two-factor authentication. What's it called when you that sort you do that that sort of email pattern where you register for a site, you give them an email, they send you a message, you click on the link to prove that you own the email address. Yeah, the the email verification. Yeah, email verification, right? So, right. so it's the same thing as the SMS thing. If you if you give up your email address and somebody else gets it, which is which is, I mean, who does that? I don't know if people do that or not. But if you use like a throwaway email address to um, to, uh, to identify yourself to a website, then, and then you release your email address, the person who gets the email address basically has the keys to the kingdom. Right. Am I thinking about right. that? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess not many people just kind of, kind of delete their email address, but yeah, if that situation were to come up and they did and someone else would grab it up, then you know, I guess, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I'd never thought about it before because it's just, you know, I figure when you stop using an email address, it's either because, you know, you switched ISPs and so that email address ceases to exist. And I don't know, you just think about, you just think of it not existing anymore, not that it's eventually going to be potentially owned by someone else. Right. You know, it's kind of kind of where the email addresses go to die. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I know. I mean, I know I've been contacted by a, a half a dozen Jonathan Starks because I have a bunch of Jonathan Stark domains. Yeah, I used to get. Actually, I got, <laughs> I got an angry. You remember, remember when Facebook switched from just having uh, URL identifiers of just being, just I guess the. Um, object IDs and just actually let you choose like a username to identify your 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 profile. Hell yeah, I stayed up till midnight to. Get, yeah, know. I got I got angry angry emails from another Kelly Shaver, <laughs> and it was funny because then I could respond to her and I could truthfully say, yeah, and that set of cookware you had on your Christmas wish list is really nice because someone got it from me by mistake once too, from Amazon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She was she was not happy with me. We argued for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I've I've gotten her gifts before, and I I got her her username, and I think she also she realized at this point also that I had the domain name at kellyshaver dot com, and mm -hmm. she was she was not happy about that either. Dang. Well, is she? I presume she's not a developer, but no. <laughs> that's good at least. Yeah. I'm not gonna get hacked. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, so so quick side story. Um, my telephone number that I've had since the early '90s is one digit away from the uh, PayPal helpline. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, virtually, it's like the the PayPal phone number is 402, and my area code is 401, and otherwise the numbers are identical. So I can always tell when PayPal's having a bad day because my phone will start ringing like every, you know, a few calls every hour of people looking for PayPal customer support. <laughs> and I cannot tell you, and usually it's always people that are in states that are near Rhode Island because they're, they're sort of pre-programmed to dial 401, not 402. Right. Or not the, not the 800 number. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's actually for um, business support, which is mm. not an 800 number. So, so yeah, so I can't tell you. People have left their, their PayPal, PayPal, usernames and passwords on my voicemail. Can you log into my account and see how come these aren't going through? You know, it, and it's like, uh, it's been going on for years. I mean, yeah. I, I remember talking about this at a security conference in like 2005. <laughs> and it's like, why, why wouldn't they spring for an 800 number? Like, they probably have no idea that. Yeah. I mean, I could hose them down. Yeah, you could. You could, you could get so many account, so much account information. And the and the guest wouldn't the guest the the user wouldn't even know like they'd be yeah. like I called PayPal, you know, and then yeah. they would eventually call back probably the correct number and be like I talked to you for an hour last week. They'd be like we have no record of that. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, I I actually felt bad for PayPal customer service because for a long time I would call people back that left messages because usually mm -hmm. they're they're panicking. They're like they've got right. some problem. Their business can't run credit cards or whatever. And for a long time, I would call them back and be like, you dialed the wrong number, but I, I don't do it anymore. It's like, it's too many, it's too many phone calls. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I have a, I have an uncle who's, he's an, he's an interesting character and his phone number is, I think one different from like a local pizza place. <laughs> and he used to get people calling college students, calling like drunk college students, calling him all the time to order oh, pizza. And for a long time, he would tell me he had the wrong number and he got so tired of it. He eventually just started taking Take the orders. orders. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, would you like to pay by a credit card? Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, expiration date? Yeah, it'll be there in about 30 minutes. Thanks. Oh, man. That's hilarious. He, he And he would have their address, too. So, like, yeah. you could do all sorts of wacky stuff with that. Yeah, it was, it was almost always someone on campus. Oh, man. So, yeah, people worry about web security. So that, so the whole, yeah, so bringing that the whole thing up, is is i guess just sort of uh it was an interesting interesting thing that happened with the the phone number giving up the phone number but the you know what happens when you release an email address and do people do people i don't think people would typically consider the ramifications of releasing an email address be like i'm just i'm just gonna not use it anymore yeah i, I don't think it's never occurred to me to really worry about that. And if, if there was a checkbox that said, would you like to release this email address back to the, the universe? I would not have thought twice about it. Be like, yeah, I never use this. Yeah. So it's very, it's, it was, it was, I don't know. I yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to have to hold on to my kellyshaver.com domain name. I'm going to have to put it in my will or something. Yeah. Well, seriously. I mean, I, I have a, a friend who, um, who kind of one of his his sort of big missions in life is to start like a I, I don't know if he's done it or not but he was talking about starting a foundation for for what happens when someone does die and mm -hmm. like I mean I'm not gonna live forever and I have a ton of a ton of like servers and accounts and all, all over the internet like what's going to happen with those? You know, they're, they're like my website, let's say, you know, it was like a really popular website that had information that a lot of people used. Uh, it, 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 how's it going to live on like after, right. you know? And so his kind of thing, it's, it's, he's not like archive.org type guy, but, but it is kind of like that, that, that concept. Like I feel like we think, Oh, you know, this is like, once it's on the internet, it's forever. But, um, you know, as soon as you stop paying those hosting bills, it's no longer forever. It's no longer forever, right? So, like, what what happens? You know, and I don't think there's. Yeah. I mean, he's. He, I think his thing is to start a conversation around that because he thinks it's a bad thing for stuff to just start disappearing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get into the get into the the question of of not only do things disappear, but stuff starts disappearing but accounts get locked domain names expire someone else grabs them up they you know maybe maybe you have a like a popular maybe you have a popular open source project or something that you maintain mm -hmm. and then you know something happens to you then you know maybe there's someone in the community that wants to pick up that you know 
domain, you know, what happens? Do they lose the domain name? You know, it's just. Yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it, it needs to, it needs to sort of, there needs to be, I feel like there should be a process or some kind of, which I think is, is, is this fellow's gig. Right. So, like, like can... when you, when you register a domain name or something, there should be, you should be able to put like kind of like an emergency contact information. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly that. Uh-huh. So I, I'll, we'll see if I can find, uh, if he's got a, a good blog post on it. We've had conversations over dinner. I don't know if he's blogged about it, but, um, probably has. So put some links in the show notes. Doug Shepherds is his name. Yeah. It's, it's certainly something I've thought of before. Mm. Cool. Well, geez, it looks like the time really flew. It's already hour 15 in. So is there anything, uh, anything you wanted to wrap with this week? Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's it. I mean, it's, it's been a week of mostly designing things, so I haven't had a lot of, a lot of code to talk about. Yeah. Same here. Lots of design. I, I, I did some, some interesting picking through and, and finding bottlenecks and applications and what have you, but they were, they were on a project for someone else. So I'm not really at liberty to talk about specifics on that. And I haven't got enough past it yet that I've had time to to sit down and really put together any any thoughts in general about you know performance and optimization that kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah well it'd be cool to hear about that if, if eventually it gets to that point yeah uh yeah i've actually got a couple of, of outside projects that um are supposed to release soon in june anyway it's june mm -hmm. it's june right yeah almost over uh so hopefully we'll have maybe some of that to talk about next week cool um, I also, I noticed that we never tell anybody how to get in touch with us. So maybe um, you are, do you want to actually? My my email address? Probably not that. Probably not that. Phone Twitter? number? Yeah. Phone number, your credit card information? Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, well, both of us are extremely difficult to find. I mean, all you have to do is know our name. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess we don't really need to plug ourselves, but we do. We do have. Uh, there is a niche apps Twitter account that um, that I use specifically for show stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so if uh, I suppose if people had questions, they could either uh, ping either one of us directly on Twitter or at the niche apps uh, account. Yeah, we have, a, have the the niche apps account, and the the only thing I will point out is that I am I'm Kelly Shaver, and that's on Twitter, and that's Kelly with an I. Yep, K I L L E Y. <laughs> All right, so that's our show for this week. I am Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver with an I. <laughs> and we hope to have you join us again next week on the Niche Podcast. Bye. Yeah, I got a funny story for you. Should I leave the recorder on or leave the recorder I don't know. You might want to leave it on. All right. Uh, just, just talking about Kelly with an I. Um, when I was in college, my design for you know, going through in graphic design classes, I had gotten gotten to design for, and there were only eight students in the class, and five of them were named Kelly. <laughs> so we had we had Kelly with a Y, we had Kelly with an I E, and we had two Kellys with an I. So so the other one was Kelly with an I, and I became Kelly with one I. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, dear listener, we will bid you adieu. 